Hi, Pastor Adam here, and we are continuing our discussion on relationships this week by looking at a popular example from Scripture. We're going to be looking at King David and his relationship with his friend Jonathan, how we can take away something that's important for how we use relationships and how we treat relationships here in the body of Christ. If that sounds like something you might be interested in, then this is the sermon for you. All right, so yeah, as a quick as a quick reminder, we're spending this final month just talking further about relationships, the kind of relationships the believer should be striving for, um, and how that compares to what we see in the non-believing world. We're talking about how we as Christians should be working toward a covenantal understanding versus a for relationships versus a a contractual or a transactional understanding for relationships, which is what we see in much of the world around us. It's what's encouraged in much of the relationships that we find ourselves in. And so last week we talked about the basis of where we find that, where we find this more complete and more in-depth and dynamic type of relational connection. Throughout history, God has set the tone for this type of commitment with his people Um, toward his creation that we want to strive for um, both with him in return but also with each other in the body of Christ. The history of his covenantal commitments demonstrate his commitment and oath to be the God of his people. He, by his own accord and grace, chooses, as I said last week, to align himself with his people. It's his personal oath his personal commitment, um, which isn't dependent on circumstance, uh, performance, clauses, you know, what I can get out of it. It's not, it's, not, um, it's not selfish in nature, like the relationships that we have today, that we see around us today, that's encouraged today, but it's based on his good and gracious character because it's what he wants for us to be in relationship with him. And so that was the basis that we're, we're going to be building off of in the weeks to come, and that was last week. So now that we have that, now that we have a, a better base of covenantal commitment moving forward, we're going to start to try to work on um, how it is that we as a body, understanding how we as a body can, can live up to that, can be moving in that direction of a deeper and richer type of relationship than what maybe we're used to, and what we're used to seeing around us, <laughs> what we grew up from and with. The same covenant that brings us into relationship with God also brings us into relationship with his people. So the relationship with God's people is based on covenant as well. You can't relate to God on the basis of covenant and refuse to relate to others who are related to God on that same basis. It'd be like, imagine trying to like have a conversation with a sibling where you don't called dad, dad, or something. You know, like you refer to him as something that's personal to you, but not something you share together. You can't do it. You can't relate to people on the basis of it without acknowledging the shared covenant. And covenantal relationships are on those two planes. Vertical toward God, some of you might have heard this expression, vertical toward God and horizontal toward one another. So, Covenantal relationships are built on the fact that we see what God sees 
in each other, with each other, for each other, um, and so on. So one defining aspect of our relationship with one another is that we see the same thing. We see what God sees. And so what does this mean? Most people in the world only treat us on the basis of what they see, right? And we've talked a lot about this in the last couple years. <coughs> they relate to us based on our intersectionality, you know, our gender, our ethnicity, our past, our sexuality, our socioeconomic status, our shared trauma. It could be any number of things. We've talked about this before. Your credentials, your experiences. That's how most people in the world relate to you. And they're happy to keep it there until it doesn't, you know, until that's not shared anymore. And then we move on. We talked about that. But in covenantal relationships, we have the ability to focus on something bigger than that, bigger than ourselves, bigger than our own shared intersections. We focus on God's view of us, his future prospects for us and calling for our lives. The ability to know and help us toward the people he wants us to be. The people of covenant invest in that. They invest in you, labor for you, and fight for you based on that promise that God has for each of us long before it even materializes. This is what it means to be a body, a church, to have these type of people that are invested in this way, invested in what God wants for us, and our, in our holiness, and our sanctification. Colin, a couple months ago, rightly pointed to a great example from Scripture where we find a relationship that is defined on something much fuller and deeper than the vapid things that we find in relationships today. And then he sort of, you know, teed me up when he said, oh, Adam's going to be talking about covenantal relationships in a couple months. But recall, Colin, Colin, we talked about this as I said, but recall the story of Jonathan and David. Jonathan and David, two friends. Jonathan, a fiercely loyal and committed friend to David because he knew God's will for David. And he was committed to that. His own father, Jonathan's own father, was on a mission to kill David, but Jonathan was committed to protecting covenantal promises. 1 Samuel chapter 23 gives us one of the several times in which Jonathan commits himself to David in this way. 1 Samuel 23 verses 15 through 18 say, <coughs> So David and his men, about 600 of them now, left Keilah and began roaming the countryside. Word soon reached Saul that David had escaped. So he didn't go to Kalah after all. David now stayed in the strongholds of the wilderness in the hill country of Ziph. Saul hunted him day after day, but God didn't let Saul find him. And one day near Horesh, David received the news that Saul was on the way to Ziph to search for him and to kill him. But Jonathan went to find David and encouraged him to, straight, to stay strong in his faith in God. Don't be afraid, he said. Jonathan reassured him, My father will never find you. You are going to be the king of Israel, and I will be next to you, as my father Saul is well aware. And it says in verse 18, So the two then renewed 
their solemn pact before the Lord. And then Jonathan returned home. This wasn't the first time that Jonathan acknowledged this about David, that Jonathan committed himself to David in order to usher in this promise of God. It's one of several times that he did this. And though the condition was far worse than a couple chapters earlier, in chapter 20, for example, when Jonathan and David first renewed this special relationship, this covenantal relationship, when Jonathan goes to David here in Haresh, he's able to see more clearly that David will be king. These guys were both from the same family of Saul. Jonathan was Saul's son and natural heir to the throne. David was King Saul's son-in-law through marriage of his daughter, Saul's daughter, Jonathan's sister. But he was God's appointed successor, as we know, as we talked about last week, and the covenants that were set up. Jonathan acknowledged, through his covenant with David, the greater covenant, the one God was establishing through King David beyond the natural, bringing David into that role of his kingship that he was promised him. His trust in the Lord that we see in previous chapters, didn't want to recount, it's a friendship and a relationship that spans several, several chapters of 1 Samuel. If you want the fuller, more complete story, you should read it. It's one of the more beautiful relationships we see in all of Scripture, in my opinion. But his trust in the Lord enabled him to receive whatever role the Lord had for him and to encourage David in God's promises, even when it meant that he would not himself be king, even if it meant risking his own relationship with his father, surely risking his own life in the process. The, the commitment, the point I'm making is the commitment to God's will was what these guys shared. That was their bond. It wasn't anything we see like today. It was a relationship built on intent and sacrifice rather than some sort of shared material prosperity that we want out of our relationships today. A relationship rooted in their love for God just as much as their love for one another, more. That's the only thing that pushes you to do the things that Jonathan did. Their covenant was built on God's covenant. Remember I said you can't see one without the other. Their covenant was built on God's covenantal relationship. Promises built on promises set by God. And it was a faithful commitment to that, to that covenantal relationship, which highlights this special bond we find in Scripture. Really, the story about Jonathan and David, as I see it, is a story where the focus is on Jonathan, the kind of friend he was willing to be so that God's promises could be ushered in. The truth is that covenantal relationships are based on commitment and not convenience. Convenient would have been for Jonathan to let happen what's going to happen. I'm going to stay out of that one. It doesn't suit me anymore to be in this relationship. In fact, it's a threat to my life. That would have been convenient. 
but relationships that we are supposed to be striving for are relationships built on intent and sacrifice, not convenience. Like real commitment because of who God is, not convenience and comfortability. And that's difficult to maintain. Think about the relationships you've had over the course of your lives. <clears throat> over the course of your lives, relationships that have faded, that you no longer have today. Relationships you grew up with, for example, in school. We all had our group of friends, people that we considered best friends. I had like moments in my childhood when me and my friends like planned what the next 30 years were going to look like for us, which is nice and fun and cute. But if they're not built on something deeper than the convenience, which in this case was, I grew up with them, they're in the same school, kind of, you know, going through the same things a little bit, then those 30-year plans don't last. Well, my friends, like, we were living together, and, like, he was a doctor, and I don't know, it was weird. But then we graduate, we move on, we get different jobs, we grow up, we go to different colleges, and what happens to a lot of those relationships? <coughs> they fade, they go away. The convenience of being close is not enough. It's not enough. It's not enough, the convenience through our shared neighborhoods, our jobs, or interests, our reciprocated enjoyment of one another. That's what a lot of my relationships were built on. We both like the same things. We get along doing it. We're not cruel to each other in the process. That must be what it means to have a real relationship. But it's not enough to hold together those relationships. And as much as we'd like things to just be organic in relationship, the truth is that, you know, it's that cliche. Relationships, they take a lot of work. They do. Right, Pastor Monty? Especially if you want a relationship with him. It takes a lot of work. If you've been married, you know that. Even if you haven't been married and you're trying to understand what a real relationship is, you understand it takes a lot of work a lot of sacrifice, a lot of inconvenience, like all the inconvenience, <laughs> to be in a true biblical type of relationship with someone. Anything that takes a lot of work needs actual commitment and intent in order to yield fruit. Relationships that we have here are the same. They can't simply hinge on convenience. We go to the same church, so we have this natural relationship and everything else will just sort of organically figure itself out. It doesn't work that way as much as we'd like it to. It's not enough to just be in the same church and then expect everything else to fall into place and happen for us. For our relationships to automatically take on the newly defined meaning without actually acknowledging why or how the shared covenant we come from and fall under, what that means for how we reciprocate that. Proximity isn't what honors covenant. 
a deeper oath with one another, with a deeper understanding has to exist. <clears throat> and at times that work with one another is unpleasant. In the Jonathan David example in Scripture, we see Jonathan telling David about truths that I don't think he wanted to be telling him. I don't think it's a nice interaction to tell your friend that he needs to run away. I'll probably never see you again. You're being hunted. But Jonathan moved past convenience. He let know, he let David know his need to flee. He was pouring or he's pointing out the places David didn't shouldn't go. Pointing out the places David or the people David should avoid. Because that would be his downfall. There's many distinguishing marks of the covenant that we see between Jonathan and David. That they were intentional in their relationship. They didn't wait for ideal circumstances, for their promises and their relationship to fall into place. Many times they meet. Many times he sneaks away to meet and talk to David. Tell him about what is happening with his dad, with Saul. At Haresh, like we just read. My question is, how are we doing this? How are we, are we, rather, waiting for, you know, ideal circumstances to further our relationship with one another? Are we waiting for the right time, a comfortable moment, in order to invest in a deeper way with one another? The relationship was defined by the clear and shared understanding of God's will for David to be king. How are we doing this? Do we intimately know each other enough to support a ministry of someone, a calling that someone has? Are we involved enough in the body to know about those things or the gifts of people, how they can be used? Do we know well enough our own callings and ministries and gifts? I said earlier, their inconvenience made it happen. They made ongoing, repeated efforts to maintain and reestablish their covenant. They never had a one-and-done mentality. How are we doing this? Are we checking boxes relationally? How are we each setting aside our own schedules and comfortabilities and time in order to set up our relationships differently? It's easy to take for granted, as I said, the assumed relationship we have with one another because we're here. But how often do we really, like really, re-up as they did their relationship? How often do we re-up our commitments toward one another? easy to take for granted yeah I mean we go to the same church so yeah like I have their best interest but what does that mean without intent and action what's the fruit of that it's not enough to think oh I've, I've made it clear to that person before you know yeah if you ever need me I'm right here that's not enough it sounds nice but it's not enough How often do we re-up our commitment toward one another? Because these guys did it before God several times. 
they were purposefully and and they purposefully and regularly reminded one another of the promises of God which allowed them allows us when we do the same to fight a long fight that's what Jonathan did for David reminding David of the certainty of God's covenant promise to bring him into the kingship despite the optics of his present circumstance which was what being hunted down how are we doing this in the same way their covenant was marked by a certain level of encouragement an eye towards God's promises and direction are our relationships marked in the same way do our own covenantal relationships with one another see each other through difficulty because we're reminding each other encouraging with one another with the truths that we hold think of what Jonathan had to gain from his commitment as you think about relationships and social contract and you know what i was taught growing up is you know you're involved in this when there's you know mutual benefit and good and it's not really based on much other than that other than yourself and how you define your own uh, prosperity but think about Jonathan and what he had to gain from his commitment to David there was no tangible material prosperity no shared benefit like a social contract style relationship matter of fact it was the opposite <clears throat> it was his seat that he was set to give up his seat by birth to be the king that he was set to give up it was his father's love probably that he put at risk it was his own life that he put at risk by any earthly measure there was nothing about the relationship between Jonathan and David that was of anything to gain for Jonathan and that's the kind of relationships we should be having here not relationships where we're calculating what we can gain from them there was nothing to gain from Jonathan only things to lose he only had things to lose by being this committed to David and committed to God he only had things to lose by any earthly measure it was completely sacrificial on his part his commitment to the relationship in true Christ-like fashion Jonathan was ready to fully put someone before himself because of their shared covenantal understanding and vision for the future and ultimately David was able to persist in faith when he was reminded that God had made promises to make him king despite like I said the optics of his circumstance his covenant with Jonathan helped maintain that vision being strengthened in the Lord despite the threats of his livelihood David persisted because God showed him the end game and sent someone to remind him of that he had the right relationship to remind him of that <clears throat> Once we are united under this new covenant that Christ brings us into, we need similar relationships. Relationships that are useful 
in reminding and enabling us to live in our shared lives with and for God and the hope that Christ brings for us. Covenantal relationships in the church enable us to be faithful in our covenantal relationship with God. And that's the point. And that's why I say you can't have one without the other. Because it's based on honoring and being faithful to the oath that God makes for us. The way we do that with each other honors that when we're grafted into this new covenant. Colossians 3, <coughs> after 3, <coughs> says, Since you've been raised, 3 through 16, since you've been raised to new life with Christ, set your, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the world, you will share in all his glory. Put to death all these sinful things. Paraphrase. I'm going to skip forward to verse 12. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, clothe yourself with all the good things. Tenderhearted mercy, kindness, gentleness, patience. Let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body you are called to live in peace. Be thankful. And verse 16 says, Let the message about Christ and all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. Whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him. To God the Father. How we interact and relate to one another hinges on honoring that covenant, being faithful to that oath that was given to us. It's a fundamental calling we all share now that we live in radically different lives. And radically different lives call for radically different relational needs and understanding. Romans chapter 15 <coughs> end of Paul's letter to the Romans. Help others do what is right and build them up in the Lord. For even Christ didn't live to please himself. And as the scriptures say, the insults of those who insult you, O God, have fallen on me. Such things were written in the scriptures long ago to teach us. And the scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. May God who gives this patience and encouragement help you live in complete harmony with one another as is fitting for the followers of Christ. Then all of you can join together with one voice, giving praise and glory to God, the Father of our Lord. Therefore accept each other just as Christ has accepted you, so that God will be given glory. Remember that Christ came as a servant to the Jews to show that God is true to the promises he made. And he also came to the Gentiles. That the Gen he also came so that the Gentiles might give glory to God for his mercies to them. That is what the psalmist meant when he wrote, For this I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing praises to your name. And in another place, rejoice with his people, you Gentiles. And yet again, praise the Lord, you Gentiles. Praise him, all you people here on earth. And in another place, Isaiah said, The heir to David's throne will come and he will rule over the Gentiles. They will place their hope on him. It's this type of re renewed relationship 
which by its nature turns back its attention and prays to our covenant God. C.S. Lewis says, <coughs> to end, <coughs> he says this, uh, gosh, I didn't write the name of the book. I'll post it if I, if I need to. He says, in friendship, we think we have chosen our peers. In reality, a few years difference in the dates of our births, a few more miles between certain houses, the choice of one university, university instead of another, the accident of a topic being raised or not raised at a first meeting, any of these chances might have kept us apart. But for a, a Christian, there are, strictly speaking, no chances. A secret master of ceremonies has been at work. Christ, who said to the disciples, Ye Christian, or ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, can truly say to every group of Christian friends, Ye have not chosen one another, but I have chosen you for one another. The friendship is not a reward for our discriminating and good taste and finding another out. It's the instrument by which God reveals to each of us the beauties of each other. So how are we honoring what God has chosen for us? <coughs> As a concluding question. How are we reflecting this covenant that each of us find in Christ back toward one another? How are we living in a way like Jonathan did for David? Um, I guess my official questions I can present now <coughs> before the sorry before the presentation. How are you this is an official question, Colin. How are you combating inconvenience in your relationship with one another? Meaning, how are you fighting against that? How are you being more intentional relationally? But how are you combating inconvenience in your relationships with one another? Secondly, what are you doing to remind one another of our shared responsibilities and calling as Christ's disciples? What are you doing to remind one another of the calling we have as Christ's disciples, as people under this new covenant? And then lastly, how can your relationships be marked more by intent and sacrifice rather than convenience and selfishness? How can your relationships be marked more by intent and sacrifice rather than convenience and selfishness? <laughs>